Good morning. Appreciate uh, Tim Alderman and his um, introduction this morning. Uh, you know, after we talked about tattoos, and you know, I'm I'm just not going to get a tattoo because I think it's you know the Bible's against it. So, and also um, next week, Tim, if you could cover mixed bathing, that would really be great. Dancing, yeah, dancing, uh, and, you know, dancing knee and a praying knee, not on the same leg or something, I don't know, but yeah, let's cover that, let's cover that. But uh, it's great to be together this morning, I wanted to thank Jeff Gangelhoff and, uh, you know, for all the the service that he has done and apparently is going to continue to do, so, uh, but appreciate him and uh, and their family and uh, everything that they've done to serve. Uh, My uh, my job this morning is to introduce to you uh, Douglas Jacoby. And uh, that, that is the correct pronunciation, is that right? In the U.S. In the U.S., well, but, I mean, I, I'm so multilingual and international that, you know, I, I'm here, so I'm going to do it the way Americans do it. Douglas Jacoby. I always remember it, Kobe Bryant, Jacoby, so that's, that's just how I do it. Um, but uh, it's really great to have Douglas here, and I know that a lot of us have uh, taken advantages of some of the books and uh, DVDs and stuff already, and I uh, would encourage you to do that again. I appreciate smart people. And uh, I don't think you necessarily have to be an educated person to be a smart person. I have a client who uh, never got out of high school. He grew up in Gainesville, Georgia, never graduated from high school, and he owns a cement factory now and is just a multi-multi-millionaire, just smart and sharp as a whip. I mean, you know, really a great, great guy. Um, And I would say now he's very smart, but his smarts never intersected with formal education. And so I think, you know, when you've got somebody who's, who's got a good brain anyway, and then they, they really decide that they're going to devote their life to studying the Bible, to studying the biblical languages, to looking at the historical context of the Bible, I just think that's fantastic because somebody that decides to devote their, their life and their mind to that, I want to sit at that person's feet and I want to listen and I want to learn. And uh, I have never heard Douglas speak before, so this is really a treat for me. I'm really excited about, uh, about hearing the things that he has to share. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, says, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I really do believe that there is a place in the church for teaching, and there is a place in the, uh, in the church for deep Bible study. And uh, I appreciate it, especially because I don't usually go there. You know, I usually just am fairly superficial and just kind of keep it on exhortation and, uh, you know, trying to glean the little bits and baubles that I can. So uh, I appreciate it when somebody has decided to really take it deep, and uh, that's a wonderful thing. I do have a little bit of a surprise for, uh, for Douglas, though. Uh, he asked me, I was going down to get a coffee at Starbucks, and so he asked me to, uh, to get him one, and so he said uh, that he wanted a, a double decaf latte. And so I thought, you know, he seemed a little down this morning, so I figured I'm going to pump him up a little bit. So it wasn't decaf. It was completely uh, straight up. So, you know, he, he may just go for a long, long time, or he may have, you know, just, uh, I mean, if smoke starts coming out of his ears, then you'll know they probably should have gone with the decaf. Just kidding. It was decaf. But, uh, but really looking forward to what Douglas has to say this morning. And uh, let's give a warm welcome to Douglas Jacoby.
Thank you, Steve. You did have me. Yeah, especially because they say that even decaf, usually, they've done the surveys, especially on Starbucks. It's, decaf has a lot of caffeine in it because they don't clean the, the system quite as often as they should. So I, I keep that in mind. It's really good to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I feel really weird using a microphone. But this is being recorded, right, and all that good stuff. I'll just put this over here. And um, I'm really happy to be with you. We're, we're newcomers to Georgia. Our family has just lived here for three years. We lived halfway between Athens and Monroe uh, until a few days ago. And now we're residents of Marietta. And the last year, more than the last year, we've actually been commuting about 400 miles a week to come to church functions. And we, we thought it was worth it. I think you understand that. And um, so happy uh, just to be here. And I understand speech is coming soon, right? And you have other outside speakers who come in occasionally. I think that is so phenomenally important. And if I get my way, my hope is to see more than just outside speakers. I want to see more joint services. Because the, what I call the Atlanta family, you can't call it the Atlanta church. And I don't want to get into all the technicalities of what you call it and how it's organized. But, but we can be connected as a family. And I think so many good things are on the horizon. I like the way that things are going right now. In my ministry around the world, I, I teach a lot on unity. Believe it or not, that's a very common request. Talk about unity. And one thing I emphasize over and over is that relational unity is far more important than structural unity. What do I mean? I mean in a city or a state or a nation or even worldwide, we could be connected in in a, a number of possible ways, ways you could conceive. The Bible isn't so crystal clear about how much structure they're supposed to be. And smart people disagree on exactly what an elder does how churches relate in a geographical region. But one thing the scriptures are really clear on is that we need to love each other. How did the early church stay connected? They stayed connected through visits, conferences, not many, but some, and through letters, the written correspondence. Pretty much the same way we stay connected, through things we read and write, uh, through visits, and occasionally through seminars and conferences. Relational unity is so much more important than structural. And what is unity? And this is not the topic today. But unity, I could define it. Unity is staying connected even when we disagree. Unity is not homogeneity, uniformity of thought. where We all agree on every little thing. That's not unity. That's, uh, I don't know, that's some kind of theological cloning. (laughs) If we all agree on everything in this room, what does that tell us? Someone's not thinking. Maybe nobody. But mature people can, like mature... I'm glad to see you guys sitting together again. That's great. Um, Steve and Kim, there's a little emotional distance there. But just as in marriage, we can disagree on things, but we stay connected. Same way in the church. What do I do? Um, uh, We started a ministry school, which I lead with uh, Sam Lang and Joey Harris. Joey... Joe is a great uh, friend of mine, African-American brother, who's been part of my teaching ministry for about 10 or 12 years now. He's in Augusta. Sam's in Athens. And we have a ministry school based in Georgia and Manila and Lagos and London and San Diego, and hopefully soon in, uh, in uh, Jamaica. 
and we have about uh, between 150 and 200 students right now. What I'm trying to do is simply teach. These are not staff people. Well, some are. Some of the brothers and sisters are on staff. Some aren't. What I'm trying to do is simply teach people biblical skills. You know, you can't play, play fast and loose with the Bible. You can't just open it up and go with your gut feeling. You've got to study. You've got to be prepared. That's what we do. I've written lots of books and audio. I speak all around the world. Um, this year will be 40 different cities in uh, Latin America, Africa, Europe, Asia, and the South Pacific, and North America. So if you say, where do you speak? The answer is yes. Okay, everywhere, everywhere. I'm very encouraged, as I continue my preamble here, with what I see worldwide. And if I were going to put it into a sentence, I would say faith is on the rebound right now. Had a chance to preach in Paris a couple of months ago. One of the churches that, um, when the tsunami hit not the one of January 26, 2005, but an earlier one you may be familiar with, uh, was probably the most devastated of any congregation I've I've visited, losing 80% of the members. London, who lost about 40% of their members, they're on the rebound right now. And every time I go, you can see the faith growing more and more. There's more trust, one another trust. There's more trust in God and willingness to take chances. There's more trust in leadership, which is a good and biblical thing. There's good and bad leadership, but leadership is of God. That's a biblical thing. Very encouraging. I was in Madrid. I was in Spain uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, the fellow met me at the airport, and we went out for a cup of tea. And I said, well, how's the church doing? And he said, oh, it's so encouraging. We have lots of studies going on. We, we're having a lot of baptisms again now. We, we grew 30% last year. I'm thinking, this is incredible. This is Western Europe. This is, in some parts, the most sluggish part of the churches that we normally are connected with. Mexico, very, of course, Mexico has continued to start churches through it all. Even in 03, I remember five, there are five new churches that began. One of them was actually in Chihuahua. They started a church in Tabasco. You know, they got some cool places in Mexico. I was there uh, just a few weeks ago at Easter time, in fact. It's very encouraging what's happening. You have some places that have hardly changed. At the end of the last year... Um, I, I went into the Ivory Coast. The Civil War has pretty much died down. And they said, I asked them, so how are things going? And when I say how are things going, I'm not talking numbers. That's a very uh, kind of narrow way to look at it. But they said things are going great, it's fun, and we've been growing. We grew about 400 last year, about 400 more this year. This is very encouraging. There's a wide spectrum worldwide. And maybe some are still a little bit slow, but in most places, faith is absolutely on the rebound. And I feel that even the church I'm part of, which is called North River Church of Christ, uh, there's a lot of really great things happening, which is why we're there. That's why we're there, particularly the focus on the next generation. Well, I I feel like I should preach because any remaining minutes I have, I don't want to cheat you. Uh, But it's so good to be living in Marietta and... um, our son is, we're emptying the nest now. Our son is going off to college, and we've got a couple still at home. That's where we are in life. Married 21 years. Now we've been introduced. You know who I am. Okay. Let's open to Philippians chapter 3. And I want to simply introduce a concept today. This, you know, some uh, sermons are more to challenge, some are more to uplift, some are more to inform. This is more to inform, though I think you could be inspired if you get it. If you get what? If you get the point of the sermon. How can we not get a point? We're an intelligent audience. Okay, when you're talking about the mysteries of God, it's not, as was eloquently put, it's not really a matter of intelligence. 
And it's, it's a matter of heart, but it's even bigger than that because even if you've got a great heart or heart and intelligence, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to figure out God and put him in a box. Some mysteries of God's word are so hard to grasp that we have to try again and again to get our, our minds around it. So in Philippians 3, we come to a very familiar passage. And we're, we have a lot of passages today. I'm going to try to be fair to the scripture, but I, I wouldn't exactly call it um, a, a normal expository message where we have one passage and we stay with it. This is a little bit different, even for me. Here we read, and I'm going to try to address both sides of the room, not just the sheep side, but the goat side as well. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you in this room were born in the United States? And if you weren't, where were you born? Germany and South Africa and is that it? We're just a tri-national room? My family's more international than this room. <laughs> My wife's British. Uh, one of our kids is born in Sweden, one in England. We adopted one from China. But this passage says that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, fundamentally, are you, most of you, are you an American citizen? Careful how you answer that. Where is your citizenship? Because if you say, well, it's U.S., particularly after we just read this passage, there's a little problem with that. Because the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. In one way, yes, I, and I was born in the U.S. I am an American citizen, and yet I'm not an American citizen. In fact, if I'm, in one way, it's fine to be an American citizen. In another way, if I'm an American citizen, I'm not even going to be saved. You can't be saved if you're an American citizen. Your citizenship has to be in heaven. Did you catch that nuance there? Depends on how you phrase it. The theme of the message today is what New Testament scholars call already but not yet. Is that a familiar phrase to anybody in this room? Okay, and that tells me how many books on New Testament theology you've been reading in the last hundred years. Okay, but we'll explain this and you may even be able to chuckle about the phrase by the time we're done, already but not yet. It's a quality of the spiritual world which is breaking into this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're not in heaven, are we? It sounds like a contradiction or maybe a cute way of demonstrating some biblical truth or phrasing it, but it's not. And I can really only uh, bring this to life. Is it okay to take my jacket off? I, I don't want to be offend you. <laughs> I didn't know you guys were so casual. I normally ask ahead of time, and, and every church has a different convention. And some, I mean, when I was in Paris, they said, wear a jacket, but do not wear a tie, because that separate, isolates you from everybody else. Uh, when I was in Trinidad a few weeks ago, they said, wear a jacket and tie, but always take the jacket off when you begin to preach, because it's so hot, and that is our custom. And other places, uh, you know, you could wear shorts, and it'd be fine, even though the Bible condemns it in the same place that it condemns uh, tattoos and mixed bathing. <laughs> I can illustrate this concept for you. And if you, if you can grab hold of the concept I'm going to try to present here, it's actually going to give you a tool. It's going to give you something that when you go back day by day and you study your Bible, you'll be able to go deeper and maybe make sense of some things that didn't make a lot of sense before. Let's see how we do. Now, 
Are you saved? In the Bible, salvation is past, present, and future. It's past, and yet it's future. Uh, we were reading in 1 Peter 3, in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, although you, although you have not seen him, 1 Peter 1, 8, you love him. What else does it say? Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with this inexpressible joy. Why? Because you're receiving what? Well, what does your Bible say? You're receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 18 says we were redeemed from the empty way of life. We were redeemed. Well, then don't we already have the salvation? Well, yes, we're already saved, and yet we're not yet saved. Kind of depends on what you mean. I mean, in Hebrews 9, 28, it says that when Jesus appears again, he's going to be bringing something for us if we've been waiting for his return. And what is that thing he's going to bring? If you don't know it, Hebrews 9, 28, salvation. He'll be bringing us salvation. Well, if you already had dinner and I'm going to come and serve you dinner, that's going to be kind of hard to stomach, isn't it? What do you mean? If we already have salvation, how can he be bringing salvation? Have you ever puzzled about this? In Acts 22, Paul, Paul is told to be baptized and, and wash your sins away. Let's turn over to Romans 13, 11. I don't expect you just to buy into this, but I think if you can see the text with your own eyes, yes, then there's a chance that we'll be on the same page. It says, besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near, and so forth. Well, (laughs) which is it? Are they already saved? You know the answer to this. Yes, already saved. Are they saved fully? Not yet. yet. Already, but not yet. And this corresponds to your experience and mine. We're on a journey. We've not reached the destination. And yet, in a way, we already have reached the destination. And I know in in any, any normal discussion, this would be double talk. You'd say the guy can't figure out what he thinks or he doesn't understand the text. But it's because of the nature of heaven and earth. We have these two levels, the celestial and the terrestrial, that, that this double reality is a fact. It's like my citizenship is down here and, and it's up there at the same time. Which is it? The answer is yes, both. I know it seems contradictory, but it's not. We know that we're already saved. And yet we know it depends on our faithfulness to the Lord if we're going to hang in there. As far as it depends on Christ, it's clinched. As far as it depends on us, we're still working it out, aren't we? This is a great mystery. And sometimes the great mysteries of God cannot be captured by a single verse or even by an illustration. I mean, it's like the, the boy digging at the beach. He digs a hole, and the philosopher walks by and says, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to put the ocean in this hole I'm digging in the sand. And the guy says, you can't put the ocean. It's profound. It's, you can't put that in that little hole. And yet, what, what would God say to the theologian or the philosopher? We really think we, we, can, we have the mind of Christ, but can we really capture some of these truths and put them in a simple formula? 
It doesn't work. God is so much greater than we are. He's so far beyond us. Let me give you another idea. The kingdom of God. (laughs) The kingdom of God. Is it here or not? (laughs) That is the correct answer. (laughs) It's already here. And and, and it's not just that it, it arrived at Pentecost. It did. It actually arrived multiple times in the Bible. Anytime the king came, the kingdom came. It's here, but it's not here. Colossians 1 says we were transferred from the dominion of darkness. Hey, do you remember that place? If you're a Christian, do you remember that dominion of darkness? And you're brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were transferred from one kingdom to another, from darkness into light. And so it must be here. Revelation 1 says that He's made us to be a kingdom and priests. We are a kingdom and priests. Revelation 1.6. If you're taking notes, also Revelation 5.10. We are a kingdom. He's not talking about the church. The church is a manifestation of the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom. The fact is, the kingdom has already come, but not yet. Prove it. I will. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4. Look at this. He's, he's, Paul was lamenting the fact that so few people came to his trial. He was on trial in Rome, and in the first trial, people really, he was really lonely. People did not show up. But we'll begin in verse 18. It says, But the Lord will rescue me from every evil work, and will literally, it says, he will save me or bring me safe into his heavenly kingdom. So are you in the kingdom? You're already in the kingdom, but you're not yet there. Please consider this more. Another passage would be 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. If you do these things, you will never fall, but you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Now, some of you look at me like, what in the world? We're in it. We're not. We're saved. We're not saved. The kingdom has come. It hasn't come. Absolutely. I'm saying all those things. It depends at the, on the angle you're looking at it. You may need a little illustration, lest I lose you completely. Um, How many of you rent? Not many, some. How many of you own? Now, my question is, do you own your house? (laughs) Or I could say, does, does anyone else also own your house? That is, if you defaulted on your payments, could you lose your house? Okay, so this is more like a mortgage. Yes, you own it, and I'm a homeowner also, but I have a mortgage. And it's possible, though it's a horrible thought, it's possible that I could lose that home. But I thought you owned it. You mean someone would steal it from you? No, it wouldn't be illegal. They could take it quite legally. It actually, that part depends on me. And yet it's not wrong to say that Vicki and I own a home in Marietta. We already own it, but not yet. Oh, this has many applications. You think about it. Uh, And you'll probably joke about it when I'm gone. We're not just talking about an average. See, if you're thinking, oh, what he's saying is that we're on the way between A and B, then you're you're not understanding the concept. For example, is America a great nation? Well, you could say already, I mean, compared to other nations, it's a great nation in some ways. But you're talking about morally 
And in terms of what we should be, no way. We're somewhere between A and B. But that's not what already not yet means. Already would mean something very different. We're not talking about partial obedience. Like when Samuel partially obeys, Saul partially obeys Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Or the sluggard who, who buries his hand in the bowl, but he's too lazy to bring it up to his mouth. That's, that's not already not yet. Well, he's begun to obey. He's not completed. That is not what we're, we're not talking about an average. We're actually talking about two separate realities, two overlapping realities. And so this tool, I'm hoping, will really take us to a different place in our Bible study. The idea is simple. It's not something between A and B. It's something that is true of our lives, even while what appears to be the opposite is also equally true of our lives at the same time. And I'm going to tell you that if you don't embrace this concept, you cannot possibly understand the kingdom of God. It's just impossible. Now, let's, let's, let's give some areas. We've already talked about salvation. A second area would be redemption, because you can find scriptures that say we have been redeemed, and others that say we are not yet redeemed. Am I right on this or no? I mean, if you think I'm wrong, then you need to prove it to me, because I've studied this, and this is a concept in the Bible. A third area, and I have seven, would be resurrection. Please turn to Ephesians 2. You all know verse 8. How about verse 6? It says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, now, according to this, have we been raised? Yes. In fact, we've been seated in the heavenly places. It's like we've already gone to heaven. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But remember, we have two overlapping realities. Have we been raised? Well, I know in baptism we were raised. No, but I'm talking about being raised up from the earth. What's called the general resurrection. When Jesus comes back, we'll all be raised up and we'll... Has that happened yet? It has not happened yet. Not yet. And yet, it already has happened. We've already been raised up. We're already sitting in the heavenly places with our Lord. If you didn't know that, you've been skipping over a lot of scriptures. Let's go further. Again, it's not a reality that's an average between one reality and another. It's two overlapping realities that both work. The kingdom of God, has it come? And this would be a fourth area. Well, it came at Pentecost in a way. But if you look in 2 Timothy 4.1, take, take a look at this. Again, this is informational. This is meant to give us a concept that we can get our hearts around or our heads around. And if we do, I think it's going to help a lot in the future. And what do we read here? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you. Now, when it says, in view of his appearing in his kingdom, what is he saying? Jesus has not yet appeared. This is the parousia. This is the second coming of Christ. In view of his kingdom, the fact that this is going to come, the judgment day is on the way. See? And we already looked at verse 18, where he'll deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So, did the kingdom come yet? In a way, yes, but in a way, no. And here's one thing that means. You know the Lord's Prayer? How many of you prayed that growing up? 
It's one of the earliest prayers I remember. And then what were you told later? Were you told that that prayer was only to be used for about three years until the kingdom came? Oh, a lot of people were told that. But, you know, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You say, well, I really can't pray your kingdom come. Well, yes, you can. But I thought it already came. It did. But is it here? No, not yet. That's why we pray for God's kingdom to come. It's a perfectly legitimate prayer for a Christian. Okay. I thought that might be good news. <laughs> you can pray that prayer. It doesn't mean that you're confused. <laughs> because we're dealing with two overlapping realities. The kingdom of God is on the way. I mean, it's come in a way, but in a way, no, it's not come. Come on, look around. It's not here yet. Look around. It is here yet. It's in our very midst Luke 17, 20. It's right here. It's among us. It's within us. And we experience that, don't we? And yet, look around. It's not here. It's not here. Oh, please let it come quickly. But it's not here yet. Not yet. Overlapping realities. Well, this is important because some people focus a lot on the not yet. And we focus on the not yet, we end up in what's called performance theology. We're never really confident about God, our salvation, or his work. We're always saying, not yet. I can't do it. I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not feeling good about what God's doing around the world. But there, you have the other extreme who focus on the already. And these people, they're so confident they're saved, you, you can't tell them otherwise. They don't seek input. They don't want input. They won't ask for input. You get too focused on the already, you're neglecting the, the counterbalancing truth of the not yet. When you, when you focus on just an already, what you really end up in is just a grace theology. A theology that says, you know, I'm saved, once saved, always saved, is kind of where that leads. And in the tsunami after effect these last few years, we've seen many people on that side. We've seen others cling to the other side, the not yet, the performance side. We've got to perform because we're not yet there. And these other people are in the, they're very grace, gracious, graceful, grace-filled. <laughs> and they're starting to sound like Calvinists. Like, you know, it's once saved, always saved. Which it's not. We are saved. We have been saved, but we're not yet saved. Now, let's go further. Being dead to sin, a sixth area. I got a, a round of emails. I get thousands of emails. I got one a couple weeks ago. Some brother had done something very bad. And he wrote to me, it's no one you know, it's no one in Georgia. <laughs> I don't think you know him, I don't know him. And he said, I did, how could I do this, this sin? How could I sin not only against God, but against my girlfriend? Rob her of her purity? It was a sin like that. I just, I can't imagine that I'm even a Christian. This doesn't make sense. How could a Christian do that? And it was the, the typical, you know, okay, do I need to get baptized again? Some of you have struggled with that very thought, haven't you? You said, if, I were real, if I'm not a Christian, then that explains a lot more than my assumption that I am. Well, what is the reality? The reality is that we're all sinners, Romans 7. And yet in Christ, Romans 8, we are victorious and we are sinless. What are you talking about? We're sinners and we're sinless at the same time? Yeah, what does 1 John say when it talks about walking in the light? 
See, what is walking in the light? Does that mean, oh, uh, not only keeping your conscience clear, good message, but it means not sinning at all because if you, if you step out of God's will, you're out of the light and you're lost. Is that what that means? Because if that's what it means, what about 1 John 1 where it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. If you're in the light and the blood is cleansing you from all sin, then, then being in the light must mean that you keep sinning. I'm afraid an awful lot of people have it backwards. They would say, no, in the light means you don't sin. Well, in a way, you don't sin if you're born of him, as First John says. But in another way, you do sin in the light. You're not convinced? Romans 6.6. 6. The baptism passage is verses 3 and 4. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin, for whoever has died is freed from sin. You were crucified with Christ. Brother, you died to sin. Sister, you, you no longer are bound. You're, you were crucified with Christ. Let's go to Colossians. I simply want to look at the first paragraph of chapter 3. Now notice what he says. So if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Now, get, get, get the wording here. 3.3, three. for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, he says it right there. We have already died. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Fantastic. We've already died. Hang on. What does verse 5 say? Put to death, therefore, whatever in you that is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So in this passage, what part is the already? You've died. And what's the not yet? Therefore, put, put it to death. Which perspective is accurate of those two perspectives? Can you see? They're both right. But can you see how if you just dwelt on one or the other, you would end up with a lopsided theology? This would affect your life. It would affect how you feel about yourself. It would affect uh, how you interact with other Christians. It's not one or the other. It's both. Because we, although we've already died with Christ, we are not yet dead. Now, you could, if you... Take this recording and take little snippets, little sections out. You can make it sound like I am absolutely contradicting myself. That's why you've got to hang. It, it's one concept. You've got to hang with it and see how it fits together. We have died, but we've, we still need to put ourselves to death. And that's not me making that up. That's actually right there in Colossians 3. I, I know you've seen this before, but have you put it together? The dangers are at the extremes. At the one end, there's the arrogance, the carelessness. At the other end, you have people being down on themselves. Godly confidence, godly security is not found at either of these extremes. These are overlapping realities. Again, the not yet focus leads to performance theology. The already focus leads to a, a, a false grace kind of theology. We live in two worlds. We live under two sets of conditions. And you can't understand the kingdom and the Bible 
And, and even how God works without embracing the concept. Let me give you one other idea very briefly here. The idea of being a new creation. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you in Christ? I'm, I'm assuming most all of you in this room are in Christ. I don't, I don't know, though. Okay. So you're a new creation. Do you feel like a new creation? Do you look like a new creation? Do you act like a new creation? The Bible says we're new creations. John 3, 5, we're born from above or born again. The Greek, it means exactly the same thing, from above or again. It's a double meaning. So we have been reborn. We are new creations. Okay. Then what about 1 John 3, 1? When we see him, we will become like him, Jesus. When he comes back, when we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. That sounds like being a new creation. Or, if we can go full circle now, go back to Philippians 3, but the verse after where we started, and this will be the last verse we'll look at. Philippians 3, 21. I think you'll see that there are a lot of scriptures that that support this concept. Well, he said our citizenship is in heaven, and we're expecting the Savior Jesus from heaven. Verse 21. He will transform the body of our humiliation. That's a good way to put it. More and more, the older we get, right? That it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. What's going to happen to our body? What does he say? It's going to be transformed. Into what? A new creation. Of course, we already are a new creation already, but you got it. Not yet. There are two overlapping realities. Let me give you a couple of applications here. One another relationships. Okay. Someone in this church falls. Messes up big time. Sins. Might even be me or you. What do you do? Well, we should be totally shocked you were truly saved, you would never do that. Well, I've been around long enough, like some of you, I'll be starting my 30th year as a Christian uh, this year, that I know that people who I, I, I know they were saved, and maybe they proved it over a period of decades or years or months or maybe weeks, but they do some really incredibly shocking things. Oh, a friend of mine said, it's always easier to doubt your own baptism than to trust in the grace of God. It's always easier to doubt your own baptism than to trust in the grace of God. That was Doug Arthur who said that. But you see, when someone falls, I don't think we should be shocked. Because of what? Because of the not yet. Because that's a biblical reality. That brother or sister has not yet arrived any more than you or I have arrived. And that means there's no room for self-righteousness. Because that person you're dealing with is already a saint. That person is already born again. That person is already a new creation. That's a Christian. We need to respect one another and expect and believe in the best. So this idea of already, not yet, this affects our counseling. It affects our one another relationship. How about in marriage? Is it even necessary to spell it out? I mean, just use, your, just use a grain of imagination. We get so taken aback. We... We react, we fall into these patterns, but can you see how grasping this concept could help us rethink the way we look at our spouse? Parenting, the not yet. 
man, I can't believe my teenager told a lie. I can't believe, I mean, that teenager is baptized, told a lie. I can't believe so-and-so cheated on a test or talked to me that way. And yet your teenage child is not yet perfected, though he or she is on the way. Philippians 3, we're on the way. We have not arrived yet, but let's live up to what we've attained. Let's press on, press on. Already, that teenager is a saint, may not be acting like one, but if we will envision him or her as a saint, don't you think that's going to change how, <laughs> what home life is like and how they end up doing? How about the area of evangelism? As we share our faith with others, we're just on the way. How we present ourselves, confidence. Well, yes, we need to have confidence, but we need to have humility. Confidence that we're on the right road. In fact, the only road to eternal life, and we've already found it. We have indeed found it. We don't have to go around with our tail between our legs, acting like, well, our church is probably as bad as any other. We're no better than anybody else. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that we need to have the self-righteousness. Confidence comes because we have found the way. Humility is because we've not yet arrived. See, I can share that in my evangelism How long? Probably the last five years, this has been the theme of my evangelism. So I don't want to to downplay what the Lord has done in the church and in my life, my family's life. There's some great news there. But if I only blow a trumpet and I'm only looking at the, you know, the already, look what we, that's really lopsided. But to say, yes, we're on the journey. We're on, not all roads lead to heaven. We're on the right road. We have not arrived yet. See, there's a humility, but we're on the right road. And a proper understanding of already and not yet can lead to much greater balance in evangelism. And one last area is our walk with God. How we feel about ourselves. Already saved, not yet saved. Grasp this truth, and I think we can have godly confidence, not being weighed down with guilt, doubt, or insecurity. I challenge you to admit, just admit the reality of the already and the not yet. Be humble. Rely on the grace of God. If you can comprehend this concept, then the sermon has got through. Please meditate further on the concept. This, this could lead to some inspiration. To put it another way, and I don't know who put it this way, but someone put it this way. Simply become what you already are. Become what you already are. Well, is this sermon already over? <laughs> already, but not yet. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Doug. I can uh, safely say that I have not heard a, uh, a sermon with that many passages. Uh, quoted lately, and I took down all of them, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to reread and, and rethink that. I mean, you know, it's, uh, that was a great topic. I appreciate you bringing us there, and I think it's very much, uh, you know, something that we need to think about because it's very practical. Thank you very, very much. It's great having you here. It really is. Amen. I'm not even going to try to sum up what he said there. I already have, just not yet. I already have, just not very well. 
Um, a couple of announcements here, and then also we can uh, we can do our prayer requests. Um, we're going to have uh, on the 25th of June, that's two weeks from today, uh, Speech and the Gang are going to be here. And uh, Speech is going to preach for us in his ministry. When they heard he was going to preach, they all wanted to come. So very encouraged by that. think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, Gene, are, is, are we going to have this big a room or a bigger room than this? Good, good. I think that probably would be helpful. Okay, all right. But, uh, but that will be great, and we'll be talking more about that. Um, also, um, and I think a lot of us know this, Anthony and Cheryl Sisko are planning on moving up to Marietta. And uh, also, I found out this week that uh, Anthony's brother, Burke, and uh, Leanna are also going to be moving up. And uh, they're going to be worshiping with us. And uh, I'm very excited about that because Anthony is going to be able to help with the preaching and, uh, and teaching. So, you know, we're encouraged by that. The rumors out there that we have hired him as our preacher, that is not true. Well, actually, we want him to be our preacher. We just don't want to pay him. And, um, and actually, uh, he doesn't want to be paid, so, uh, but he's going to be here and uh, really working uh, closely in the ministry, and uh, he's, 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 he's already here then in, in sort of that way. He's just not here yet. I like this thing. This is going to work for me. I've lost 20 pounds. I just haven't lost it yet. That's right. That's right. And so performance oriented. Um, we do. Uh, we do have a, uh, a a very serious prayer request for uh, one of our own here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jason and Madeline Gangelhoff, Madeline found out that she has breast cancer, and um, so she is going to be having surgery this Thursday, and. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's significant, but they think they caught it very early. And so um, she's going to be having that surgery on Thursday. So we really need to be keeping them in, uh, in our prayers. Jason called me this morning, and I found out about it about a week ago. And, I, you know, I've just been sick about it. But, um, so, but I have been praying. And um, so let's pray for, for Jason and Maddie especially <clears throat> at this time. Um, she requested that, you know, instead of calls and visits and stuff in the hospital what she would like for us to do um if you'd like to is write a card and then next sunday and give it to deb and uh you know she'll be in the hospital hopefully she'll be getting out she has the surgery thursday hopefully monday she'll be getting out and so uh you know she just wants that kind of recovery and just to be able to kind of you know gear it on back so let's really be praying for uh for maddie at that time any other prayer requests that we have yeah 